This is Crossings, The Refugee Experience in America, Episode 4, Mental Wellness, Trauma and Recovery. I have crossed so many rivers. I no longer get wet. This is a Kurdish saying. It summarizes the refugee experience and exposure to trauma. While refugees have been shown to have a great deal of resilience to mental health difficulties, they do occur. Trauma, pre- and post-migration stress, are the subjects we'll cover in today's podcast. We are including conversations with two refugee mental health experts, Ghislaine Herzig, the clinical counselor, Refugee and Immigrant Community Services at the Heartland Alliance, and Amy Dix, clinical manager at the Heartland Alliance and the former manager of a program called FACES. First, let's join Janice Pugh-Waller and myself in a conversation about today's subject. Our listeners should know, we embarked on the post-production of this episode in the fourth week of the global coronavirus crisis. We practiced social distancing during this conversation and recorded it over cell phone. So the first thing to know is that the therapies and treatments for trauma and stress are not different from those in non-refugee populations that have suffered these. However, the prevalence is high in refugees. Janice, what are the common disorders and which are most pervasive in refugee populations? Common disorders among refugee populations include things like anxiety, trauma, PTSD, and depression. Depression can be up to five times higher among refugees as compared to the general population, and females are associated with the increased prevalence of mental distress overall. But Vince, the identification and treatment of mental health problems with refugees has not been well documented. This is due to complex cultural contexts and languages, scattered refugee populations, and most importantly, the lack of evidence-based interventions, which makes it more difficult to track this type of data. So let's talk about trauma. We should expect that refugees experience inordinate amounts of trauma. I think about the experiences of political and religious oppression, war, migration, resettlement process overall. A study of Vietnamese and Kurdish refugees identified 612 war-related traumatic events. Take a minute for that to sink in. Imprisonment, torture, loss of property, malnutrition, physical assault, prolonged flight processes, these factors can all contribute to trauma for refugees. And in addition, refugees can develop a sense of betrayal, either by their own people, enemy forces, or by the general politics of the world around them. Well, it seems to me that a refugee would have a hard time establishing trust with anyone, including those assigned to assist with their relocation or resettlement. You are correct, Vince. Having the actions of others control a refugee's life can have a significant impact on their health and their ability to trust others. 
Interpersonal relationships are critical to the resettlement and healing processes, and as you can see, this is already a challenge for them. Post-migration stress also influences the emotional well-being of a refugee and often causes risks similar to, if not greater than, the war-related trauma events a refugee has already endured. So this may be a revelation for some, that the stressful conditions and trauma-inducing events, they just don't end after an individual has been afforded refugee status. Well, you heard the figure on depression, but consider this. Refugees are about 10 times more likely to have PTSD than the host country's general population. Studies show children have the increased levels of PTSD as well, so it's not just limited to the adult refugee population. Depression can have long-term effects on both adult and children refugees, with studies showing that depression rates can be as high as 40% among refugees. Well, it's, it's clear it does not end after the migration experience, illustrating the fact that mental distress does not disappear after resettlement. So this is a good time to introduce our first guest. Let's hear first from Ghislaine Herzig, clinical counselor, refugee and immigrant community services at the Heartland Alliance. This was recorded in January 2020 in Chicago. So we're here today at Heartland Human Care Services, and visiting us today is Gilan Herzig. Yes. Tell us your title. Yes, I'm a clinical counselor here. So can you tell us about your efforts to reach refugees and asylees in need of counseling and clinical services? Mm-hmm. Um, thank you for the question. Um, Here, uh, we resettle uh, participants who are refugees um, and and help also asylees. Now, when people arrive here, they receive a lot of services during their first three months in the country. When um, we witness some distress, difficulty functioning that might actually affect uh, their establishment here in the U.S., typically they are referred to my program called Preferred Communities, um, which provides intensive case management services as well as counseling services, uh, community um, support groups, activity groups, uh, home visits when needed. Um, we are very flexible and really cater to the needs of those participants who have a lot more difficulties or more vulnerabilities than others. Mm-hmm. So on any given month, um, how many cases do you serve? Oh, that's a good question. I f- a little more than 30. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That seems like a large amount for a caseworker. Oh, it depends. It is a large amount when you're dealing with people who need a little more support due to their unfamiliarity with services, resources, language, culture. Um, so it takes a little more time, yes. So do these efforts reach adults solely, or do they include services for young persons? So directly, mostly adults uh, and families. Uh, In terms of direct services to children, we now have the availability to uh, refer to a new trauma center in Chicago. So uh, on the subject of uh, trauma and emotional distress, are there unique core therapies that are most effective 
with the refugee community? So to always keep in mind, you know, the three big phases of trauma uh, therapy would be to provide safety, um, reconnection, remembrance. So those are three of Judy Thurman's focuses on trauma approach, uh, which guide most of our practices here. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you the next question in uh, generalized terms. Um, uh, and I imagine that trauma traumatic events uh, extend beyond those suffered in the country of origin or the time spent in the journey uh, to one or more new home. We know that refugees and asylees can spend uh, many years in camps. Uh, before reaching a host state for resettlement. Can you summarize any of the typical traumatic events that occur and the, the impact and how you can have uh, the best impact on successful integration to a new home? So, as you mentioned very well, there's the pre-migration traumatic events uh, that could range um, not only from witnessing war and violence and conflicts and being, you know, first-hand victims of it. There is also the, um, the witnessing of um, family members being murdered in front of them, and that still affects them to this day. Um, the powerlessness that comes with it. Um, and then, you know, those unsolved uh, traumatic events from pre-migration, during migration and their journey that accompanies them here. Uh, so even though they are establishing maybe, you know, a stable life with housing and first job, those stories are still unfinished and those uh, stories are still playing in their minds because they are still separated from family. They still haven't mourned um, those losses. Um, they often have, um, you know, fa family members still left behind, not knowing when they're going to come, if they're going to come, is very difficult. Um, not to mention um, the unfamiliarity with the culture here, the expectations, some racism as well, um, and sometimes being victimized here as well. There's also the discrimination that comes with not being a native um, from America, yeah. Mm -hmm. So the traumatic events in the life of refugees and asylees don't end when they find their new home. We also know that uh, trauma is not uh, quote-unquote cured. It's mm -hmm. stored in the brain. Stored in the brain, in the body. Um, in an ability also um, to function well here in this new culture and this new social environment. Um, it affects, you know, memorization. It often affects cognitive abilities. Um, even the learning of a new language. Mm -hmm. Is your, your um, relationship with your clients, does it, does it basically begin and end at specific points in the uh, resettlement process? Mm -hmm. So my program is, is offered to them for a year. Um, often I will um, be connected with them at the end of their resettlement 
uh, first we settlement, the first three months. Uh, at the end of those first three months, usually they are connected with me if needed, if they show some distress, difficulty adjusting. So again, in general terms, because we're very sensitive to specific cases, uh, can you tell us and tell our listeners what a compelling and successful case looks like? It's not about a huge haha moment often mm -hmm. with our participants. There, there is a lot about maintaining a level of functioning that will serve them to become autonomous and independent and self-sufficient in the future. So I would say someone who can um, first meet their you know, first needs are very important. That's sort of below, like, uh, first needs, um, hold a job, continue to learn English, uh, keep housing. This is a very strong base. And then so we can meet higher needs after that and maybe address the trauma story and address also the pervasive effects of trauma in their lives. Also connect them with their community here so they can build a new life here in the States. Um, and seeing them flourish, you know, beginning to connect again with trust, with others, uh, beginning to see them having hope for a better life here despite the obstacles they are facing. Mm -hmm. So is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners that we haven't touched on here? And take your time. Maybe that even though there is so many obstacles on a journey that's not finished as people arrive here, uh, to be aware of the many strengths people come here with, uh, the many contributions they can make to their community, um, other newcomers to America and um, to, to just also focus on the strengths, not only on the deficits, because they have so much to offer. And um, I think uh, we often don't recognize that. Yeah. Guylaine, I want to uh, thank you for joining us here today, the frank discussion uh, that you've allowed us to have. So what are the services you can provide uh, to a client to effectively uh, sponsor their mental health wellness? Mm -hmm. It's a very good question. Uh, services that I propose here are very wellness-oriented. Um, so I would talk about wellness enhancement services such as individual counseling, support groups, activity groups, psychoeducation, uh, referrals and, co and connections to community partners. Um, but they are very oriented towards their goals, um, their wellness here in the United States. And so that's very broad. Um, it includes you know, um, financial wellness, physical wellness, emotional wellness, relational wellness. The idea is to focus on uh, the positive outcomes they can get from participating in my services. And so it's very broad. It's psychosocial, psychobiosocial, uh, spiritual connections when, when they need it, you know, with uh, faith-based communities, um, 
but really to help them build a solid life here for them and their families, and we enforce their links and their relationships with families. Mm -hmm. So here in Chicago, how broad is that community of cultures, uh, nations of origin, uh, do your customers come from? In my program, I have participants mostly from Central Africa, from Congo, uh, Rohingyas, uh, people from Eritrea, some people from Syria. Mm -hmm. uh, and then um, some people who, who come from uh, Sudan or, um, or other countries, but in lesser numbers. Mm -hmm. We've been speaking with Ghislaine Herzig of the Heartland Alliance, Human Care Services. And I want to thank you again, uh, Ghislaine. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for the work your organization does. So Ghislaine taught us a great deal. As a result, I'm thinking about two topics, Janice, uh, you and I discussed as we were putting this episode together. And these are the clinical concept of a condition called demoralization and another known as acculturative stress. Help me out with demoralization because when I think of this word, I recall its informal use. Like my favorite sports team was demoralized by a loss. But this is a term with a more significant meaning in clinical circles. This condition was identified by Jerome Frank, an American psychologist who defined demoralization as the failure to cope with internally or externally induced stresses coupled with feelings of impotence, isolation, and despair, all of which contribute to a sense of meaningless in life. He introduced this concept in his 1961 book called Persuasion and Healing. Well, let's put a pin in the condition of acculturative stress, because our next guest will help give us a lot of context for this condition. She is Amy Dix, clinical manager at Heartland Alliance and the former clinical manager of FACES, a refugee health program. This was also recorded in Chicago in January 2020. So we're back in uh, Chicago in the Uptown neighborhood this time with Amy Dix of Heartland Alliance Health, and we're going to be speaking about mental and emotional health care for refugees and asylees. Uh, Amy, uh, is it okay if I call you Amy? Yeah. <laughs> we know that uh, Heartland Alliance's health service and social justice missions uh, have a broad reach, uh, a great deal farther than the refugee community. But our mission on this podcast is to feature stories uh, regarding newcomers in America. Can you tell us a bit about your efforts uh, to reach refugee and asylees in need of counseling and clinical services? Yeah, so um, our program has changed a lot recently, um, but it's been around for probably about 20 years. And so it's known in refugee communities as um, kind of the place to get mental health care. Um, so we get a lot of referrals from the resettlement agencies. Um, but recently I've seen that a lot of our referrals are coming from coming from clients, coming from within their communities. Sometimes it's someone who was served here and, you know, saw some some good changes in their life would would reach out to to friends and neighbors and, and tell them that they could come here to get support. So you're, you're talking about peers? Yeah. 
other resettled refugees or refugees in the resettlement process? Yeah, I mean, we had one lady um, who was, you know, getting some therapy here and she saw her neighbor crying in front of her apartment building. And, you know, she comforted her and said, hey, what's going on? Are you OK? And eventually I think this lady started to, t- to talk to her about what was going on in her life. And she said, like, you can come to this place. I know it seems weird to you to talk to a stranger about your problems, but like these people help me, they might be able to help you. So I was like really happy that that happened. Of course. Uh, Now you mentioned that this program has gone through some changes. Um, Actually, when we were researching this uh, to come um, do a feature story on FACES, the Family, Adult and Child uh, Enhancement Services, uh, we learned that this program has changed measurably. Yeah, it has. And it's been really recent. It's been only a couple of weeks. So at the end of 2019, the International Faces Program closed. Um, and it's due to funding cuts that are coming for refugee-specific services. Um, we have transitioned. I'm still here. Some of the staff are still here. Um, we now have a program called Care Coordination, um, which is more focused on well, coordinating care. So like case management supports for people with a mental illness. Right now, we've carried over a lot of the refugee clients that we had, um, but that that program is going to open up to other other populations as well. Uh, So in care coordination? Yeah. um, Do these efforts reach uh, adults solely or do they include services for children or under 18? Yeah. So care coordination is going to focus on adults. There's... Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, when we had international faces, um, I mean, it was Bosnian mental health when it was the Bosnians arriving. We got some big grants to serve kids. They had a lot of services in the schools. And by the time I joined, those services f- that were mostly focused on kids were kind of rolling down. Um, we kept a few, mostly older adolescents, for a while, but now we just don't have capacity. So you went from uh, Bosnia when that was a significant crisis. Um, and uh, what does the uh, complexion of the community look like today? And I should m- more carefully state that as uh, what are the national origins that you see most? Yeah, in our uh, program, we're still seeing a good number of Bosnians. Um, we see a lot of Iraqis with a scattering of Syrians. Um a lot of Burmese, who are some of the newer arrivals, and a good number of Congolese, you know, a couple Eritrean, Ethiopians, a couple from other countries in Africa, a few Afghanis, a um, couple like Nepali, Bhutanese Nepali. But yeah, a lot of the new referrals are Burmese and Congolese. So let's talk a little bit more about the core therapies. What are the unique core therapies that are most effective to assist those uh, who may have suffered trauma or in a post-trauma state or emotional distress from the entire process of uh, being a refugee? Yeah, it's interesting that you said a post-trauma state because I think some of many are still in a traumatic situation. Um, And there are plenty of, you know, evidence-based therapies 
that um, we would use to to support people, um, you know, narrative therapies and um, like cognitive processing. But because a lot of people are still experiencing trauma, the trauma of resettlement, um, domestic violence, living in poverty, a lot of what we're focused on, especially in like early stages, is really trying to create that initial like baseline sense of safety. So what that and that's why care coordination kind of grew out of what was left of the IFACES program is because so much of our work is towards, you know, making sure somebody has food, making sure they're not about to get evicted, making sure that they are not living in a dangerous situation. Um, and a lot of that it what really looks like case management. So in fact, trauma doesn't end and traumatic events don't end after you've left your country of origin, after you have uh, uh, moved from a refugee camp and you're here in the United States. No, um, I think a lot of what people come to us for is the the distress that they're feeling because of the current situation that they're in. Um, for a lot of people that I can think of, it's family separation. Um, so worrying about their grown daughter or not sometimes grown up um, who might be in danger or they just can't reunite um, and I think that that might not be a trauma in the same way that we think of like, you know, a rape would be a trauma or a death would be a trauma, but it, but it is um, that ongoing separation. Um, and, you know, people come to the U.S., they are safer. A lot of people do feel, I think, very relieved. Um, and there's usually a lot of poverty. There's not a lot of support. They experience discrimination. So some of those ongoing traumas... Um, are impacting them as well. We've heard the term expressive therapies. Um, are, are those part of the therapeutic process for your program? Yeah. Um, well, they were. <laughs> um, our, our program, when we were doing a lot of therapy, we had art therapists and we had a dance movement therapist. And we found those those would be expressive ways, dance, art, music, um, because a lot of trauma is stored in the body and it's experienced in a physical way. A lot of our clients, our participants are coming with a lot of physical complaints and their doctors are like, okay, well, I don't really know what other medication I can give you to solve this problem. And a lot of it is pain. So we've done a lot of work in groups um, and we've done a lot of like dance groups, dance and movement, yoga. Um, and we've found that to be really effective. It's a, it's a shame that you're not able to practice those now. Yeah. Or, I'm, I mean, we're able to hold on to some, yeah. some things that we're getting some, some support. There's a yoga teacher coming. So we're going to do a yoga class. Well, that's good. Um, to, good yeah. to hear. Uh, so, are you engaged in making referrals for cases that you just don't have the resources or you know, very specific skill set to uh, administer therapy? Um, yeah, we do. I mean, we just went through a really grueling process of referring out a lot of clients that we were able to see in-house. Um, we refer to the Kovler Center, um, which is another Heartland program. Um, 
they serve victims of torture, which a lot of refugees are, whether or not that's something that they necessarily talked about in their interview. Um, so we've, we've referred a lot of people there. Um, we refer to the therapists who are internal to this program. Um, we refer to Ghislaine sometimes, who you talked to. Um, and sometimes we'll try to refer people to mainstream mental health resources. I mean, essentially Heartland is a mainstream mental health resource, um, but you know, other, other community mental health agencies in the city, I, I find that they often are the ones referring to us because they feel that we have the specialty, the language abilities. The language abilities. What, uh, how many languages do you support within this organization? Well, we used to have, we used to have eight staff, which was 13 languages. Um, I think we're pretty close still, maybe like 10. And our clients spoke about 27 languages. So we would use match-up languages as much as we could and use telephonic interpretation or in person when we could get it to make up the gaps. This is, I can only imagine, uh, a very skilled field requiring experience. Uh, is there um, an integration in any way of volunteers in this program? So our program hasn't used volunteers outside of like uh, social work and counseling interns. Um, I know that Kovler, that's a big part of their, of their model. It's a heavy lift um, that we haven't been able to to pull off sure. successfully. Yeah, that takes a lot of uh, resources just to support the... Yeah, I would love to um, in, the, in the future. What does a successful case look like for your team? I got to hear a lot of those stories in the past couple months as the therapists were saying goodbye um, and transferring somebody to another, another therapist or deciding that they were going to end therapy then um and a lot of people were just talking about how they felt when they first came to the U.S. or when they were first referred here um I just remember one lady had said I felt like I was gonna go crazy like the way that she phrased it was very much like I was just about to like rip my clothes off and like run into the lake like just like constantly feeling so overwhelmed and so stressed and um, I think that that in her culture was sort of, that's the phrase, you like go crazy, like you go stark raving mad, you know? And she was like, but, you know, she she met with a counselor, she started coming to a group, um, she got a little bit of case management to like kind of feel like someone was with her along the way. Um, and we we discharged her to the program. She doesn't need therapy anymore. She says that she's feeling she's feeling stable, like... And a lot of times we count our success with our case management successes, right? This person has an income. This person is working. This person has stable housing. Um, because we know that is not, not possible if your mental health isn't cared for. Well, and you can't maintain your mental health unless you reach some yeah. state of homeostasis yeah. like that. They if, see each other. If, if that's the right term. What makes you hopeful about the work that you're doing? I think it's I think it's when I see stories like that. Um, you really, there. I've really struggled seeing my program close um, with feeling hopeful or with not just sort of feeling despair. Um, 
So, but I have to focus on like the one story at a time, like one step at a time. Um, we recently got somebody housed, like that's going to last me for weeks, you know, like those kinds of situations. I have to report on progress made, um, to one of our funders. So I go through that list and I look through the notes that the, the case manager and the therapist write. And so I'm looking for any kind of progress. Like, did this person start to, you know, they handled this situation on their own without uh, needing to call a case manager or without like feeling panicked or, um, you know, little things like that. Or now I know that they can come here on public transportation instead of being too scared to go out. So it's, yeah, having to keep reminding myself of those things. So you have an opportunity to reach our listeners. What can they do to help programs like these in their own communities? And what do you want them to know? What I want people to know is that not all Americans are like what they see in the news in terms of not being afraid of or not wanting to welcome newcomers. Because um, I've heard that from some of our participants, that there was this fear that they weren't wanted here or this this feeling that, you know, they're going to be sent back or no one will bring their family to join them. Um, and I want people to, to understand that that's, that's a, a, a small and vocal portion of American society. Um, in terms of how they can help these sort of programs in their communities, um, I think that... <sighs> It's, it's hard to say. <laughs> I think that they can, if they know the people who work there, those people really need support. It's an extremely, it can, it can be a very grueling job, um, a very isolating job. I think my staff, um, most of them, all of them at this point, except for me, are born outside of the U.S. and usually came here as refugees. And so they're just in it, you know, they they see themselves reflected in their clients and that makes them really great at it, but it also <laughs> can make it really, really hard on them. And so, um, you know, taking in terms of like taking your work home. So in terms of like, if you know these people in your community, just to, su to support them because of, they, need, they need support as well. You know, so I imagine, and we've heard stories about uh, refugee populations, well-educated uh, refugees that come to this country and face uh, chronic underemployment. Uh, and does that factor in to any of the uh, emotional distress that you've seen uh, in, in the time that you've spent in a counseling role? Yeah, I think it definitely can. Um, one of our one of our staff here was a doctor, and then working as a case manager. Um, so I heard from his personal perspective um, just the the stress him and his family were going through. Um, and I I've seen a lot of stories, like you said, of people who that becomes really a major issue because it creates it feeds those feelings of worthlessness and hopelessness, um, which is, you know, part of your depression. 
So I think that if someone it doesn't have support in some way, like someone who can give them hope or people around them who are, you know, like letting them know that they're worth more than their job or their ability to provide for the family, then yeah, people can really, really sink or have some sort of a mental health crisis. I think even I particularly have seen a lot of young people who maybe they were like the one in the family that everybody was like, this one's going to go to like education, high school, college, and they come here and all of a sudden it's like, no, you need to work at the airport um, because all of your little siblings are too young. They need to be in school. Like you need to work and support the family. And then that person can sometimes have a real crisis. Although... To be honest, most people that I've seen have been these super hyper responsible oldest children, you know, and I'm sure it takes its toll, but they do their duty to the family. What haven't we covered that you wish we'd ask you or some area that uh, you'd like to append this with? I guess I, I would like to talk a little bit just about mental health services in general, um, which have not only have refugee services been massively cut, but so have community mental health services um, for people who have Medicaid, for people who don't have any insurance at all. Um, and so our, my, me and my program have been sort of in the middle of those two intersecting circles um, but it's a much bigger issue. So if to your old, older question about um, what could people do, I think refugees and immigrants and asylees are all over in, in your neighborhoods and in your communities, whether or not they're like doing a refugee-specific thing. So they're going to come to your community mental health center and they're going to come to your health clinics. Um, and so advocacy towards supporting those clinics and keeping the doors open and making sure they have enough trained clinicians and making sure they can pay for interpretation is is going to make that easier whether or not you know we're here with like a refugee specific program because we know we're not going to have one of those in every town um but i think our society so much under hides and undervalues um our own mental and emotional health and so we just sort of try to pretend that those aren't happening and close all the clinics. Um, so just like a bigger, a bigger picture. Because clearly um, a mental health clinic uh, services for emotional well-being are not focused on specific communities. The application of the craft and the experience and the training is applied to all people. And it sounds like our problem really is that we have undervalued the importance of um, mental health care and push it to one side or the other while we're preoccupied with other concerns in this country. Yeah, I think so. I think that um, with with refugees, um, I think that people can understand, I think, you know, these people have experienced sometimes really unspeakable trauma. Um, and so, of course, they're traumatized. And so, like, let's put that in its own little box. But really, like, it, it affects us all. Um, 
to to now those people are our neighbors. <laughs> and and so, you know, their trauma in some ways is our trauma. And we need to, like, be in it together. Or their trauma is like the trauma of a uh, school teacher who's experienced a, co- a school shooting. Yeah, and I think, like, you know, here in Chicago, we have a lot of, there's a lot of violence, a lot of, um, a lot of neighborhood violence, and that can affect um, refugees because they live in the cheapest neighborhoods. Um, and then it can affect any of us. So, yeah, mental health services should be funded. <laughs> We've been speaking with Amy Dix of Heartland Alliance Health, speaking about mental and emotional health care for refugees and asylees. Thank you very much, Amy, for joining us here today, making time for us. Thank you. I wanted to reflect on a statement about this very phenomenon of refugees and immigrants being required to hold two cultural identities in a new host country. I'd like, if we can, to listen again to Ngozi Ukazu, a writer and creator of graphic novels, from her recorded commentary supporting the American Writers Museum exhibit in My America. I think it dovetails well with what we're talking about. It's, it's that realization that you are different, that there's, you, you ask yourself, why aren't there others here with me? Um, is this wrong? Is it right? And it, you're forced to process yourself in the lens of others very early. Um, I think in some, there's pros and cons to that because the self-awareness can sometimes um, be internalized as an otherness that is wrong, but it also gives you a sense of maturity. It even gives you a sense of empathy because you are literally forced to put yourself in other people's shoes. Janice, can you break down acculturative stress? Acculturative stress is the process of integrating into a new culture while maintaining one's origin, culture, and identity. This process is dependent upon attitudes from both the migrant and the host country and is based on the demands of the overall immigration experience. Basic stressors may include unfamiliarity with daily tasks, difficulty finding employment, learning a host country's language, discrimination, and the feeling of not belonging in the new environment. In the literature I reviewed, Vince, there are four types of stressors related to refugees. Let's start with the least type of stressor and continue through to the greatest type of stressor for them. The first is called integrative, in which the refugee maintains their cultural identity while becoming a participant in the host country's culture. The next, assimilation, in which the refugee gives up their cultural identity and absorbs into the host country's identity. Separation is the third. The refugee maintains their cultural identity and rejects involvement with the host country's culture. And the last one is called marginalization. The refugee neither identifies with or participates in both their own culture and the host country's culture. Janice, how can a host country assist or hinder relief from these conditions? Well, Vince, Host countries may apply its more positive values to help refugees, which would in turn promote things like multiculturalism, where the host country supports the diversity of all refugees, or a melting pot where the host country supports the assimilation of refugees. On the other hand, the way a host country could hinder refugees is by promoting their country's worst values, which could result in either segregation, 
in which the host country forces the separation of refugees from the general population, or worst of all, exclusion, where the host country imposes marginalization of all refugees. You've been listening to Crossings, The Refugee Experience in America, Episode 4. We will be following up with a future episode about mental wellness, including first-hand reports on trauma and trauma recovery, as well as how the global COVID-19 pandemic is affecting refugee health and safety in camps and entries into other countries, including the United States. We want to thank Ghislaine Herzig, Clinical Counselor of Refugee and Immigrant Community Services at the Heartland Alliance, and Amy Dix, Clinical Manager at Heartland Alliance Refugee Health Programs. Today's interviews were recorded in Chicago, Illinois. It was written by Vincent Hostack and Janice Pugh-Wohler. Edited by Vincent Hostack, with music by John Orr Franklin. You can find John's music and more at johnorfranklinmusic.com. That's J-O-H-N-O-R-R. Visit us on Facebook at Crossings Refugees. That's one word. You'll find news and supporting posts, and we'd love to hear your politely formed comments and suggestions for future show content. Find us on Twitter at Refugee underscore America. And for in-depth pieces and supporting content, our WordPress blog, crossingsrefugees.home.blog. Thank you for listening. We wish your family's health and safety in these uncertain times and appreciate your friendship with us and, of course, the newcomers to our nation. Till next time, bye, adieu, adios, masalama.